happy Friday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast, Tim Miller. Boy, it's been a while, Tim. Welcome back to the Weekend Podcast. It's Appreciate been too it. long, Charlie. I've missed your dulcet tones. I've mm-hmm. been getting tweets from people. Where's Tim? Where, where are you? Are you and Charlie fighting? Is there a feud happening? You know, there's been some gossip floating around. Is, is so this I'm true? Happy really? To, yeah, I'm happy to bring, bring an end to all this. I'm just telling you what's in my DM inbox. I don't know oh, what man. you're getting, but I'm getting a lot of people just sliding into the DMs saying, uh, you know, I need my fix. Yeah, no, I I, I got nothing. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just think I think it's a simple answer. I was just chosen over Tom Nichols, or Tom Nichols was just chosen over me last week. I, That's fine. I, I was just a head-to-head competition. You were like, you know what? I was looking at the ratings, and Tom gets it by a nose. I think it was no, as simple he, as that, which is fine. I can he, take it. Believe it or not, it does not actually work this way. <laughs> okay, so at the very top of, of this show, I want to acknowledge that I made a mistake in my morning newsletter. I, I, I got something wrong, and I need to clarify it. This is the, um, it's, it's my piece um, about the Revenge of Dark Maga. People have heard about this, or maybe not. This is a Madison Cawthorn's rant, where he basically says that he's now on a mission to expose those who say and promise one thing yet legislate and uh, work toward another self-profiteering globalist goal. It is time for, this. Is, he actually wrote this, it is time for dark MAGA to take command. We have an enemy to defeat, blah, 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 but we can't defeat them until we defeat the cowardly and weak members of our own party. Their days are numbered. We are coming. Which I thought was a bold play for a guy who just lost his own primary with less than a third of the vote, but whatever. He's been watching too many Batman movies. Uh, but the mistake that I made was I mocked his his typo where he wrote, the time for Gentile politics as usual has come to an end. <laughs> and I wrote, because I'm naive, I wrote the typo, presumably he meant gentle, was interesting because it's unlikely that the 26-year-old soon-to-be ex-congressman meant to call for a more robust Jewish politics. In fact, he's corrected it, and he didn't. When he wrote "gentile," he did not mean gentle. He was going for genteel, mm. and I and I apologize for the mistake. <laughs> so, uh, huh. Are we sure that it wasn't a commentary about you know how the Gentiles need to need to rally together a little a little more against? You know, against the Jews. Are, well, are we one hundred percent sure that there wasn't like a little bit of a. It, uh, it, undertone it, there yeah it's like you know maybe occam's razors he's just a bit yeah I mean, I he, 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 he's typing away and there's space lasers and rothschilds and he's deleting <laughs> it and some of the stuff but the gentiles stayed in i i don't know uh i thought it was interesting you know for people who are wondering what is dark maga um not to be confused with original maga dark maga obviously is 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 darker uh, and and you know represents the purification it is like the return to the true faith that, you know, Madison Cawthorn and his Blood allies, atonement. something like that. And I thought it was interesting. I, you know, he provided a list of his fellow dark MAGA folks. And as I wrote my newsletter, I said, it's everything you hope it would be. I mean, the lunatics, the grifters, the, the, the conspiracy theorists, the white nationalists, all the crackpots, you know, white uh, supremacists, Darren Beatty, and of course, uh, Tucker Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is his words, the great Charlie Kirk complete nut job wendy rogers who's an just an insane uh state senator from uh, arizona uh let's see here um of course uh, the former president of the united states that almost goes without saying right joe kent who's running for congress and talk about being out anyway so but he's he's provided he's the one i wrote that article about where he was he had he humiliated himself in front of the dorm room nazis Remember this? Okay. And he did oh, the, yeah, oh. he did like a Zoom interview because he was upset that the there was like this little group of so that you have the not to get too much into our no. listeners in, into the Kremlinology of the online Nazis, but you have the Groypers, you know, which are your more mainstream online Nazis, and then they've got a another group that has sort of spun off the American Populist Union, and you know, it's the anti-immigrant, all of the uh, you know Christian nationalism. Uh, teens, uh, almost all white teens, of course, uh, and uh, and Joe, they were mad at Joe because of some kind of indecipherable internal feud, and uh, and Joe was worried since that since he sees that as his base, and so he subjected himself to a like one and a half hour interview with a, a kid who, I mean, if he was fifteen, he was a day, 
and where you know he got asked questions like, "Aren't the whites being discriminated against?" Et cetera, et cetera. It's <laughs> if you yeah. if you didn't enjoy my article, this is like two months yeah, ago. I, I do. I do. That really just gives you a sense for who makes the dark maga list. This is like what you have to do to to get on the list. He he subjected himself to an inquisition over the charge of that you are insufficiently neo-Nazi. Yeah, and he's, he's trying to prove, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm going along with virtually everything. And uh, so uh, Madison Cawthorn, when he lists his dark MAGA friends, uh, has Joe Kent's name, Joe Kent, parentheses, whom I endorse wholeheartedly. Okay, that's just like, you know, I am totally into that. So don't have any ambiguity about this. This is the kind of guy that I am talking about. Okay, so oh, there's one thing about the Madison Cawthorn. I mean, we've talked about it, I'm, you know, you know, ad infinitum. But the one thing that kind of surprised me on uh, on Tuesday night, I don't know if it surprised you too, that Madison Cawthorn conceded. He acknowledged that he lost. I mean, that's kind of a cuck move, isn't it? It is, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know that, that MAGA folks, much less dark MAGA folks, ever admitted they lost. Yeah, well, I've kind of also admit an error uh, myself, Charlie, um, just like yours, it seems, I think was maybe more understandable, your newsletter error than, than what I'm about to confess to. But I, you know, on Wednesday morning, the, 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 the nicer part of my angels, you know, were sort of singing inside my soul and on the next level podcast for Bulwark Plus members, which is usually just a little bit more of a ribald podcast than we than than we offer for the non members. Uh I, you know, I, I just I got soft and and Madison had lost and I just read that Politico article that was genuinely sad and about just, you know, his mental health crisis following uh lo- losing the use of his legs. And I uh, I was also a little bit riled up by the fact that like you know, the Republican base had come for him for like, you know, wearing a, a blouse or whatever. And that, you know, this wasn't really exactly the a victory for the forces of good. I, it was it was mostly like Republicans taking out somebody that annoyed them, you know, by gay baiting. And so I didn't love that. And so I was feeling a little defensive of young Madison and, you know, kind of was wishing him the best and thinking, well, you know, maybe he'll go get some therapy you know, maybe he'll find something in his life, find some meaning in his life and move forward. And, and I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. <laughs> well, what's Friday? Those nights, I was being nice, but I mean, look at this guy. I mean, it is just obvious that he was not going to do that and was going to continue down literally the dark path and branded as a dark path. Uh, no, no subtlety. But as far as the loss, I, I, I do think that there is something to the fact that the heat was getting pretty hot. On, on him and and i don't know if you read that michael cruz political article which was really really i did i did um, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sounded like a guy who was kind of ready to, for the heat to turn off a little bit and and so maybe that doesn't mean that he was ready for therapy and you know ready to go um devote himself to serving others or whatever but i, I do think it might have meant you know, I'm going to start. Uh, people are going to stop bugging me as much if I just become Charlie Kirk 2.0 um, rather than, you know, have actual responsibilities. And uh, and I think that's probably related to why you didn't, why, why you conceded. This will probably come as a shock to you, but I, I actually get um, your, your reaction because I'd read that same piece and, you know, in which he's a deeply troubled, obviously broken kid who was, you know, thrust into something that he was completely not prepared for. Um, and there, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking uh, Tuesday night that maybe he, when he conceded that maybe he was a little bit relieved that, uh, you know, he's not going to have that kind of, of a spotlight. And, and that, you know, maybe the best thing that ever happened to him was that he has a chance to step back from all of this stuff and, and maybe heal and <laughs> forget, forget that <laughs> shit. I mean, don't know about <laughs> healing. No, it doesn't feel like healing's happening. No, it does not feel like that. That's going to be put on hold for a while, <laughs> folks. Okay, so I want to do something a little bit different. This morning, because I am a huge fan, as you know, of your not my uh, not my party um, Snapchat show. How how do you describe it? I mean, so, you know, once a week uh, and it's four minutes and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of I always get the person wrong. This shows you uh, this is why Mm. I can relate to the Snapchat audience, because I always forget the difference between Mickey Rooney and Andy Rooney. I think it's Andy Rooney. Remember at the end of 60 minutes, he did the. Yes, and a little two minute. I always kind of think of this as, you know, a little less grumpy, updated version of that where you have just memes 
and little jokes sprinkled in a two to three minute commentary on, you know, what's happening in our lives and politics these days. And it's meant for, I'm happy if everybody likes it, but it's really meant for Generation Z, um, the Zoomers, you know, who are not like following this, you know, politics, cable news and Twitter minute by minute. Like that's just not who this is for. Some of the, it is, it's somewhat for, I know those people can want to watch it too. That's fine. But it's, it's more, it's more for, for that kind of crowd. How can I give them a little injection of reality and real talk to the news to people who are like mostly consuming news from like insane partisan, you know, social media sites that, that just get, that get injected into their various, you know, TikTok, Instagram, and Snapchat feeds and, and try to provide them, you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of real talk with some humor three to four minutes a week. How's that description? What, what's interesting is, of course, is the, the, the average viewer of cable TV, you know, the reader of political websites is well north of 60 years old. And I, I sort of have the image of the, you have a lot of like 17 year olds watching this. Is that true? So we're uh, it has 150,000 subscribers. It gets six six figure views every week, and about yeah. half of the subscribers are 17 to 24. Some are even younger. Huh. So this yeah, the done. median audience is 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 a college kid. Yeah. Okay. So I think, um, and I'm and I'm not trying to pull your chain here. Um, you know, yeah. the the art of this is is that it is very very fast moving. The visuals are very very entertaining. It is often funny, but you make a very very serious point in yeah. each and every one of them they are not dumbed down so what i want to do is i want to play um the the not my party that you dropped yesterday about the radicalization of angry white men and you're you're missing a lot when you don't see the visuals but i think you'll get a flavor of what tim's not my party looks like so and i want to talk about it on the other side because you know, this is still the week. It is Friday. It, it was only a few days after the latest horrific domestic terrorism episode. And this country is reacting very differently to domestic terrorism than, than we did to previous moments of terrorism. But let's let's play this. You can find this on the Bulwark site. You can find this on Snapchat. But uh, here's the audio version. You're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it. So shut up. A mass shooting killed at least 10 people, which investigators believe was a hate crime. This is not my party. Brought to you by the Bulwark. The tragedy in Buffalo is the latest deadly reminder that the era of the extremely online extremist is upon us. I started to build this hateful mindset of just going out there and killing people. These young men were radicalized, not by religious clerics or cult leaders, but by message board messiahs who cloaked their radical ideology in memes. The 18-year-old who carried out the latest white supremacist mass murder left no doubt that's exactly what led him to do it. He wrote in his 180-page manifesto that the idea for the attack came online Browsing our Paul one day, I saw a short gif of a man walking into a building and shooting a shotgun through a dark hallway. That man was the perpetrator of the massacre at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, which he live-streamed on Facebook. Nearly 200 watched his murderous attack live, with many quickly replicating and sharing the footage. The Buffalo shooter says he then began researching Christchurch and developed his beliefs mostly on the internet, where he learned about the Great Replacement Theory, which posits that shadowy forces, usually Democrats or Jews, are plotting to replace white European ethnoculture by importing minorities with higher fertility rates. Jesus Christ. This replacement ideology has flourished in online forums like 8chan and Gab and Parler, where racist blog boys post dehumanizing memes that they often pretend are jokes when called on it. Irony is so important for giving a lot of like cover and plausible deniability for our views. Extremism expert JJ McNabb calls it a new world of ironic killers. They say things that are outrageous that they don't necessarily believe at first, but over time, they come to believe it. There might be mental illness here. This ironic pose has another benefit. It gives their racist views the cover they need to seep into mainstream political discourse. I saw this up close in 2016 when Donald Trump quote tweeted an online troll named White Genocide TM to attack my boss, Jeb Bush. White Genocide like Great Replacement, posits that the white race is being exterminated by interracial marriages like that of Jeb and his wife Kalumba. These bigots claim that white people who participate in this genocide are race traitors or cuckolds who like to imagine their spouses getting banged by foreigners. Now, these online Nazis do seem to spend a lot of time thinking about black and brown dicks. That makes so yeah. much sense. Just saying. For a presidential candidate to tweet someone with a view as insane as white genocide was unprecedented. Should have ended that day. Evil was allowed to endure. But Trump 
got away with it because it was just Twitter. So we all moved on to the next thing. But these viral moments help the extremists get new eyeballs. So does Tucker Carlson, who has repeatedly aired segments with alt-right provocateurs advancing Great Replacement ideology. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement. Country's being stolen from American citizens. Tucker, Tucker sucks. Tucker's connection to meme culture was no accident. His head writer was outed for posting on racist forums like this one about jet black Congo N-words. Carlson has spawned imitators and outlets that appeal to young conservatives like this from the Daily Wire. So they want to replace white male voters with voters who they think are going to be beholden to them. It's just a fact. And then you have the Groypers, a bunch of campus KKK virgins who take the trolling offline. Dating women is gay. It can be. The result is a bunch of entry points for angry young white men who are ripe to be radicalized. I don't really have much to lose in my life at this point. They come for the lulls, but stay for the surround sound of rage juice that tells them that they are the victim of modern woke culture. And the most unstable among them get convinced that their only choice is to act. From Christchurch to Charleston to El Paso to Buffalo, we've seen the deadly result, which is why we cannot dismiss their lulls as some stupid internet game. I'd like to close this week by remembering the people who were the victims victims of this latest racist attack. Wow, Tim, that's outstanding stuff. Thank you. And you know, I think it's encouraging to know that young people are listening to that, that, that you're getting through to a completely different audience. Yeah, that's really why I wanted to, to focus on the, the meme and the, the Reddit and the 8chan and 4chan element of this, right? Because, um, you know, I, I think that even young younger people i i see this myself like to, to get real i like i look back on you know i went to an all boys uh high school you know where we you know did said you know at times racist jokes for like the laughs right like and we were like we're not really it's just this is just to trigger people right like you know it was just bratty you know prep school kid bs and and i and i think that there are people that watch this show because I get I get feedback, you know, from people who are, you know, conservative that watch it, young, younger guys that are con mostly men uh, that are conservative that watch it, but, you know, aren't quite sure about the MAGA stuff and are, and are very, I think that are potentially uh, uh, could fall on either side of the line, right? Uh, onto the dark MAGA, Madison side of the line, or kind of be brought, you know, into the light, so to speak. And, and I think that you can understand how like, even a reasonable 17 year old would say to themselves, oh, this meme, this is just funny. Right? right. Like this is just horseplay. Right. Like right. we're just fucking around and, you know, oh, I'm triggering my teachers or I'm triggering the kids on campus, the snowflakes, you know, who 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 get all way too upset about this stuff. And you can see why they they appeal. They listen to Joe Rogan and Barstool. Right. And I'm trying to talk to that crew because there's a lot of people that are persuadable that, that I think reasonably, you know, are, are young enough to have not seen the real life impact of some right. of this, um, you know, or live in communities that are, that are, that are not that diverse. Like, you know, when I grew up in, you know, so they don't have it, don't have the experience of learning from people about, you know, what it feels like to be on the opposite end of this kind of stuff. And so I think that's why I just really wanted to focus on this because I think that it gets lost and, you know, you see it all the way up to, it's not just kids, by the way, <laughs> you know, you see, you see this all the way up through the conservative media ecosystem where there's apology after apology for this kind of stuff as it's just a joke. It's just a troll. We're just trying to own the libs. We're just trying to trigger people. And for people who have fully formed brains, you know, maybe that's fine. They can process that stuff, but you know, you're not thinking about the, unstable people, the aggrieved, uh, the young folks who, who don't have a support system in their lives who are looking at all this. And, it, and, it, and, and it, as J.J. McNabb said in the piece, they start with the jokes, but it, eventually they start to believe it. They start to buy into all of it. And, you know, if we're in a society with our guns everywhere, it's not that surprising that, that a certain percentage of them act on it. Well, that's right. Now you use the word apology, and um, I don't want people to misunderstand that because there is no apology. Um, nobody on the right is apologizing for um, these racist memes. In fact, what they're doing is they're finding ways to rationalize it and justify yeah, it. Like, right. well, actually, you know, this is true. This is what the Democrats are saying. So I was struck 
by the fact that uh, almost all the Republicans in the House of Representatives voted against a bill toughening the stance on domestic terrorism yesterday, because uh, you and I are both old enough to remember when Republicans were the tough on terrorism uh, folks. Yeah. Uh, we rem- remember the response to 9-11. The bill that was up yesterday was actually not that robust. I mean, it didn't create a new crime or anything. It basically just sort of established an office, uh, you know, a domestic terrorism office in the Department of Justice and Homeland Security, uh, FBI, and called for reports, et cetera, and monitoring. And 203 Republicans voted against this yesterday. Um, And here's the twist. Virtually the same bill was up in the House back in 2020, and it passed on a unanimous voice vote. So what's happening here? How have the how has the Republican Party gone so soft on terrorism? I wish I had a better answer than just racism, Charlie, honestly. But I mean, it's I think that it is just much more simple to blame the other, to blame Muslims, to say that there's something fundamentally flawed about Muslim ideology that we, you know, we need to root out, you know, radical Islamic ideology, if you will, um, that needs to be rooted out than, than there is to say, you know, we need to clean this up in our own house. Like, do we have to say this? Like the Capitol yeah. was sacked. The cap. The Capitol was stormed, like like last year, right? And and I I just don't know what more needs to happen to wake these people up. And and I think it's hard to come up with any defense of it that is rational. I think that what they would say is that they're concerned about overreach, you know, and targeting of conservatives with speech. And and I think that there's a fair concern about overreach. There was obviously overreach after nine eleven. I think it's still pretty ridiculous that you. You know, my grandma is, you know, having to take off her shoes when she goes through the airport right now, uh, 22 years later. Right. Uh, and that, just as one example, like like there was overreach, no doubt. And, and so, you know, I, I think if, if we were in a, a normal time where you had adults like that were able to discuss in the House and, and debate and say, OK, well, you know, what are what are some kind of restrictions that could be put in place that go too far? And what, what isn't far enough? That's not as you've said, that's how it's happening. It, it was barely. You know, th- this legislation was was not exactly, you know, the, a great threat to civil liberties, like some of the stuff that we saw after 9-11. Uh, but, um, you know, the Republicans can't give an inch because the, the reality is that, that they see these extremists as being com- part and parcel of the types of people that show up to MAGA rallies. And, and so, you know, they don't want an, a, a investig- to, to be seen as complicit in investigating people that are in their own side. And, and that's that's just real talk. It is real talk. And and the reality is, is that, you know, we do have an uptick in the body count of domestic terrorism. And I I just I was on I think it was Nicole Wallace's show yesterday and really struck by, you know, the contrast between the reaction to these episodes of domestic terrorism compared to, say, 9-11 when the country came together. And Republicans certainly decided that they were going to you know, plant their flag and, you know, you had to call radical Islamic terrorism, radical Islamic terrorism. And now it's like, yeah, no. So I, look, should we give some more free and completely unwelcome advice? Or can I here? Oh, please. If Democrats are not completely brain dead in, in their messaging, this should be a huge issue in the midterm elections, just like Democratic opposition to the Department of Homeland Security was in the 2002 midterm elections. You know, I mean, it's one thing, you, you're, you're right, by the way, about racism, but there's, you know, sort of a, a limited effectiveness in just simply saying racist, 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 sure, sure. which I, I understand, you know, white nationalist, white supremacist. But if you really want to hurt Republicans, go at them on their strengths. Say, you guys are squishy on law and order. You have gone squishy on terrorism. You have flip-flopped on terrorism. This is a reality. And, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, why they wouldn't have just simply voted in favor of all of this with, you know, how deadly these attacks have been. And I think maybe there's like a guilty consciousness that if they took an aggressive position on this, that it might ensnare some of their allies and they might be held accountable for some of their own rhetoric. And so when they voted, I think they created a pretty powerful record. If Democrats could ever, ever, ever figure out how to turn this around, because no Republican you know, back home is really worried about being called a racist anymore. I'm sorry to say that. And then, by the way, I'm exaggerating. But they are worried about being accused of being soft on terrorism, soft on law and order, not backing the blue. These are potential wedge issues. And I think that the Republicans have found themselves sort of trapped. 
by their just being against everything. Yeah, two more just data points on this. Yeah. So one is just I, I think it, the best support for our explanation for that this is why Republicans are not going along with this is the is the Tucker Carlson documentary, you know, that caused uh, Hayes and, and Goldberg to leave the Fox, right? I mean, this documentary was basically paralleling the Patriot Act to modern day. And, you know, Tucker was saying that, that, that the, the Democrats, you know, want to create a Patriot Act that targets conservatives instead, you know, that, that parallels, you know, what was put in place after 9-11. And that, that was the main thrust of this documentary. I, I think that fear of that, of being accused of that and of having a backlash among the base over that is driving these votes. You know, nobody wants to get yelled on Tucker Carlson. I want to make just one other just analogy. Yeah, you you yeah. use 9-11. 9-11 is kind of an easy analogy, but yeah. how about, I think a better parallel is what about something like San Bernardino, yep. right? Okay, fair. I'm going from memory here, so somebody right. correct me if my Google is wrong, but I, I believe that the, that the impetus for the Muslim ban originally was San Bernardino or was another one of the, one of the, you know, lesser, less deadly attacks, um, the 9-11, right? But that if you, if you remember this, you know, there's a series of kind of one-offs um, domestic terrorist attacks that were um, that were pushed by uh, you know uh, you know people who are influenced by radical Islam, and after each one of those, there was just this overwhelming response about Republicans. Like, what are we going to do? How can we crack down on this more? How can we fight it more? And you know, obviously, the the end of that you know road of of Patriot Act and all these other laws was the Muslim ban and said you know we need to stop letting Muslims come into this country until we can figure out what's going on that's how extreme it was so so i think that the apparel yeah yeah so is that it was the same video you are right i'm i'm looking this up right now so uh, trump official justifies travel ban this is 2017 by citing the 2015 mass shooting in San Bernardino California so, yeah, Trump and his aides keep uh, justifying that. We need to ban Muslims after Buffalo. Silence. We need to do nothing. That's very That's telling. That's good. That is very telling. Okay, so even more telling, and I want to just talk about this in, in a moment. We're talking about the great replacement theory because all these dots now connect. I, this is not a spoof. This is not an exaggeration. CPAC is actually meeting in Viktor Orban's Hungary today. The Conservative Political Action Conference, whatever, you know, used to be this the, the beating heart of the right-wing id, actually went to Hungary. And I want to talk about that right after this. Hey, gang, I just wanted to drop in to say thank you for joining me here each weekday. And also, I want to give a shout-out to our Bulwark Plus members who helped to underwrite this show and keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable. You might think that a Bulwark Plus membership is all about our newsletters like my daily morning shots, but really, Bulwark Plus membership is about a lot more than that. We're building a community of independent-minded, concerned patriots who value democracy and the truth. We make most of what we do free and accessible by everybody because you can't help save democracy from behind a paywall, but... We do have some great member-only benefits that I'd like to share with you, because in addition to our newsletters, members have commenting privileges and also have access to ad-free versions of this show and all of the podcasts in the Bulwark Network, like Sarah Longwell's Focus Group Podcast and Mona Charon's show, Beg to Differ. And there's the Thursday Night Bulwark, a live video broadcast that we host for members each week on Zoom. You can give Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. That's thebulwark.com slash charlie. Thanks. We are back with Tim Miller. You know, every time I see this, Tim, I, I have to sort of like double check, like, no, this isn't a spoof, right? Did, did Matt Schlapp really take CPAC <laughs> to Hungary to, uh, to, to, to kiss up to the authoritarian fascist adjacent strongman of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Did they, are they actually doing this right now at the moment that the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives and their freedom? And the answer is yes, they are. Yes, they did. Yeah. And just this week, um, to your point before the, the spot there, uh, Orban, you know, gave a speech that, uh, that, 
pushed out the great replacement theory. I need, he was talking about how, uh, you know, the, the left and the globalists are trying to, you know, replace, use literal, the literal word replacement um, of, of our culture. And so, you know, here we have a man that is, you know, was, was cracking down on, um, on, you know, uh, gays and, you know, transgender uh, people in Hungary. So we have our parallel to our don't say gay bill or Florida. Like here's a man who has been, I think the weakest member of the EU in their response to the deadly and brutal massacre that, that Putin has been putting forth in, in Ukraine and Maripol and elsewhere. And here's somebody that is advocating the great replacement theory, um, right after the Buffalo domestic terrorist attack. And, And there's no even attempt to, to put the slightest pinky finger between the 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 domestic republican conservative movement and and these guys you know and it's not even as if they're going over there and saying well you know i think orban has has offered this element of nationalism which i admire i'm a little bit concerned about you know the way that he's manipulated the media or the way that he's uh, cozied up to putin i mean we can see we'll watch you know there'll be speech after speech uh, today through this weekend i'm not expecting a lot of distancing from somebody and, and and it's because Orban and they're being explicit about this is the model a quasi kind of deformed version of Christian nationalism that cracks down on gays um you know being more friendly to authoritarian governments elsewhere being just very harshly and cruelly anti-immigrant in ways that have racist overtones the Republican Party of today is completely in line with this. And this is where, you know, I think when we talk about the big picture stuff, we always talk about in this podcast about what has changed in the party and what's the same. You know, like, <laughs> we're a long way from the days where Tony Blair is our closest ally. Yeah, you know, no I mean, I, like that is a noted, it is a notable difference in approach. And there's not any, like, meaningful pushback within the coalition. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. Um, it was just a few years ago. I mean, CPAC has always been sort of this, you know, the Star Wars bar scene of, of the conservative movement. I'm, I'm certainly not going to, you know, posit that there was a time of, you know, great principle and sanity. However, it was just a few years ago uh, that um, Mona Charon, our colleague Mona Charon, uh, appeared at a CPAC uh, forum and spoke truth to power. Do you remember this? When she called yeah. out Donald Trump and had to be escorted by security from the room because people were so angry about it. But my guess is uh, that there will be no Mona Charons in Budapest uh, speaking truth to power about no. Viktor Orban, will there? There will be no, no one who stands up uh, for liberal democracy, constitutional democracy, pushes back against authoritarianism. will not happen. Okay, so I don't want to get diverted here, but you mentioned how Viktor Orban has emerged as the model, which I find to be somewhat baffling until you spend time, you know, listening to some of the, the net cons, the Steve Bannons of the world, you know, what is the attraction of Vladimir Putin? What is the attraction of Viktor Orban? And it does almost inevitably come back to uh, their opposition to gay rights. And the obsession with this, something that, that I think many Americans have thought we've kind of like, okay, we, we, you know, settled that we've moved on. As I pointed out, we were discussing this yesterday on the podcast with Kim Whaley. I think people need to remember that until 2003, less than 20 years ago, states were free to criminalize gay sex. I mean, it was only in 2003 that the Supreme Court recognized the constitutional protection of sexual privacy. And when it did that, again, 2003, not that long ago, it did so over the fierce objections of conservative judges uh, like Antonin Scalia. So you you wonder... Um, in terms of the culture war, you know, as the culture war ramps up and as the embrace of folks like Viktor Orban in, in, intensifies, I think it's naive not to think that that's going to be a, a new and very dangerous front, which I'm sure you know. Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, no. there. Yeah, this is a clear front. I think some of the slippery slope SCOTUS arguments around Roe are, are a little silly and kind of missing the ball. But I will say this. Uh, it's just worth remembering. I mean, John Roberts was on the other side of Obergefell against, oh, yeah. right? So uh, the current makeup of the court, you know, I mean, there's decent reason to believe that there there would be six votes against Obergefell if, if this was the court that had reviewed it 10 years ago. Now, because of cultural mores and other, you know, is anybody really going to challenge it? And there are a lot of reasons to, to not be concerned about that. But, but uh, you know, look, I, I think that that's, uh, that's a fair worry. And I think that, that, that people that are mocking those who have that reasonable worry are, are, are doing so in bad faith. And then as far as the culture war attack, look, I, I do think that overall, you know, there's a new morning console poll. I don't know if it's out yet, but I did an interview for this article. Mm. There has not been a backslide among 
the public on on gay rights, right? And the public is generally favorable, you know, towards gay rights and, and continues to be moving more and more favorably towards gay rights. And, and that is why I think that you're, the danger here is you see these very narrow fights, right? Like, we're going to demonize them in schools. You know, we're going to go in Republican legislatures, and like the very concerning one in Louisiana, and, and, and basically put don't ask, don't tell for teachers in. And so I think that, you know, obviously the trans fights, uh, trans sports, all, all these sorts of areas. So I, I think that's where, where the fight is going. I think Republicans have a potential danger that, that they're kind of getting, you know, I think if you listen to DeSantis's messaging on this, you know, and compare it to, you know, what the craziest state legislature, state legislator is saying, like you see a difference in strategy or DeSantis is one that is savvy and, you know, the crazy side of the party, you know, old DeSantis is on the crazy side of the party, but the yeah. less savvy version of the crazy uh, is, is um, you know, moving Republicans in a bad direction on this against public opinion. But uh, there are enough areas, you know, where... Uh, where they're on stable political turf, at least in the short term, that, that this is definitely a fight that's that's going to continue to come. It's not just a passing fancy. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit because I have not had a chance to talk with you since you wrote your um, In Fuego piece about uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, you're suggesting that Chuck Schumer is not the legislative genius. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to laugh about all of this. But I, your, your headline was Chuck Schumer is on the cusp of butt fumbling the Biden agenda. So before we get yeah. into this, uh, could you define butt fumbling for me? Uh, it was a famous fumble by a New York Jets quarterback, Mark Sanchez, where he received the uh, <laughs> the hike yeah. from the center and then fumbled the ball against the butt, mm -hmm. against his own butt. Um, and so it's sort of like worse than like a more embarrassing version of a fumble, a butt fumble. Just a little bit of flair, a little bit of writerly flair. I think that every team has its legendary worst play ever. And if you're a, if you're around Packer fans, just just mention the name uh, T.J. Rubley. Just I'm just setting that aside here. Okay. okay, so let's talk about this. I mean, how are the Democrats doing, Tim? <laughs> They're doing bad. Um, yeah. And so I, you, I've been listening to your podcast, so I've not been invited on. No, um, no. But so oh, I know there's been plenty of discussion of the uh, of, of all the stupid messaging votes. So we can just put that aside yeah, for a second. Yeah. I want to focus on the agenda because because this is the most frustrating part for me. And sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who's screaming about this. Jonathan Chait wrote about this yesterday. So I'm not totally alone. Um, you know, we have an ally there. And, and Chait expanded on my attack on Schumer to include the number two in the Senate, Dick Durbin, who, who was quoted by Politico as basically saying that he's giving up on reconciliation and, uh, and he's oh. tired and then he worked really, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, yeah. but it's basically, I worked so hard on this and now I'm, and I'm tired and I'm just giving up. It's like, you have one job. What do you, what do you mean you're tired? And this is the frustrating thing. So for, for people who are not, uh, you know, as, keyed into all the, the various, you know, parliamentary procedures of Washington. Just a quick background. The, the, there is a rule called reconciliation that, that has there are certain limits around it. One example is you can only do it one time per year. Uh, you can only do it on uh, on budget neutral bills. But what it allows you to do is pass legislation with only 50 votes, 50 plus one. Um, and as opposed to, you know, the 60. And and while Democrats in other contexts are obsessed about this, so like, we got to kill the filibuster, we got to kill the filibuster. Well, reconciliation gives you kind of a one-time get-out-of-jail-free card on the filibuster, uh, only bills related to the budget, right? So you can't do it for voting rights, um, which is stupid. But anyway, you can do it on bills based on the budget. So the Democrats were going to use their reconciliation on their big BBB bill. Obviously, BBB is, has been killed, but but they still have their get out of filibuster free card. And, and reconciliation has been used. It was used to pass the Trump tax cuts. It was used to do part of Obamacare. It's really kind of complicated to get into, but, but Obamacare wouldn't have been fully passed if it wasn't for reconciliation. Both Bush tax cuts, all of the major pieces of budget legislation of my adult life have been used through reconciliation. They only get this one card. And, and the Biden administration needs to use reconciliation to get at least some part of Biden's agenda passed besides infrastructure. And Chuck and Durbin like seem to have given up on this. Like, like they, they couldn't get BBP passed, so we want nothing. And it's like, this is crazy. They could go into the election year and pick something popular. I, I literally don't care what it is, Democrats. I don't care. It could be prescri prescription drug costs, something that addresses the costs in people's lives. It could be 
It could be uh, child care. It could be elder care. Uh, it could, they could throw in some climate stuff. Uh, you know, and you can put together a package that, that has one or two things that you can campaign on and say, you know, costs are going up for you. The Republicans are blocking this. I want to give you cheaper child care. I want to give you cheaper prescription drug costs, and we're going to pay for it by jacking up taxes a little bit on people above $500,000 a year. Bing, bang, boom. Like, this is an easy deal. And, and and all they need to do is get Mansion and Cinema to come to the table on it, and and they seem to have just given up. And instead, what they're doing is holding idiotic message bills on on the Senate floor that Which are aren't even aren't even advancing a message that that harms Republicans. It's like like what? How are they spending their days? How are they spending their days? Why is Dick Durbin tired? What else could? What else does he have to do? They can't get sixty votes on anything. Like Republicans aren't going to vote for anything. This is all they have to do. Since we're working on analogies here, it's a little bit like having a winning lottery ticket in your pocket and, you know, somebody goes, hey, Tim, are you going to go cash in that that lottery ticket? I hear you just won $100 million. And you go, yeah, you know, it's just too much hassle. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a nap. (laughs) I mean, what? You have a fucking lottery ticket. You have won. You have this one thing to do. And they can't do it. We need the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory song. I got the golden ticket. Yeah, you know, they got it. Well, I mean, at, at, at some point, and I think you've written this, you just go and say to Kirsten Cinema and to Joe Manchin, just write on a piece of paper what you'd vote for. And we'll do that. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I, I know it's, you know, AOC will be all upset about it and everything. I mean, this is kind of the problem is that the Democratic Party is this just completely unwieldy coalition. And you think back on all of the irrational exuberance early on when they had like a, what, a three vote margin in the House and a tie Senate and everybody's going, well, OK, it's the new deal all over again. He's, you know, Joe Biden is going to be FDR. And it's like, no, that was um, I don't know what's what's stronger than delusional and wish casting. What, what can I go beyond that? Hallucinatory. <laughs> Sperlative of delusional. I don't know. Yeah. Just really quick one thing before you switch up, because I want to yep, throw this yep. out there. They could also call Lisa Murkowski. I know. Let's yeah. not be crazy here. I mean, maybe Lisa Murkowski wouldn't vote for anything, but Lisa Murkowski is running as an independent in Alaska, right? She's going to need some Democratic votes. Might Lisa Murkowski want to vote for something that's very popular, like cutting prescription drug costs and, and giving parents a little bit of a break on child care costs and, and, and only raising taxes on, on extremely wealthy people? Lisa Murkowski might be for that. Maybe she wouldn't. I don't, I don't know. But are they trying? I literally don't think that they're trying. I, and I don't have any evidence that they're trying. And, and I used to think that behind the scenes they were trying. And I just, I just wasn't no. hearing about it all the way out here in Oakland. And then these articles came out the last few weeks where, where they were like, yeah, well, you know, we're just waiting on Joe Manchin. What do you mean you're just waiting on Joe Manchin? <laughs> like, what? Like, really? You can't find, you know, this is, this is all, think about popularism. This is all popular stuff. Like, you don't have to do the six trillion. You could just pick one or two things that people like. It's I don't crazy idea for people who didn't catch that word. Popularism is the radical idea that you should do popular things. <laughs> you should put popular issues up for a vote. And for people, look, I, I do not think that you are unreasonable in, in saying that, you know, reach across the aisle. I understand, you know, that most Republicans are going to vote no on a lot of things. But, you know, there have been certain votes that indicate that that if you do the wheeling and the dealing and you make some compromises, you can you can make some progress. I think part of the pattern has been that they don't even bother to do that. So they put up very, very partisan bills and then every Republican feels free to vote against them. No Republican feels that they are on the defensive by voting against them. And it does not divide the Republican caucus at all. And so, for example, you know, with all the talk about, you know, democracy is on the ballot, I keep thinking about the strategy of putting H.R. 1 up, which was basically, you know, a a wish list. Uh, You know, the folks from, uh, you know, the Brennan Center said, no, we don't need to do these other things. We should push this big bill. And it turns out that that was completely unpassable. So they went for it all. And I don't know what the plan B is. They don't seem to have one. Yeah, well, that's it. That pattern again and again and again. Do you want to get something done or not? Do you want to satisfy, you know, this particular lefty group or do you actually want to pass legislation that might make a difference? And this decision is up uh, again and again. Okay, so can we just do a little bit of role reversal here? Because I want to actually say something positive about Joe Biden. Great. I think that over time, the one thing that Biden is getting right, I think, is his handling of Ukraine. I've been very skeptical, as you know. 
I have been critical of his caution. You know, and again, he's not the he's not the most nimble character in the world, but he has stepped up on the global stage in a way that I think is increasingly impressive. Um, and the bill that was passed just yesterday, I mean, for all the the, the, the griping, that $40 billion aid package, the Lend-Lease package, the huge bipartisan majorities for all of this, his strong stand endorsing Sweden and Finland joining NATO, this is good stuff. I mean, you know, yes, I mean, I wish it would have happened earlier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the howitzers are there. The helicopters are going there. This feels very different than the Biden team's response to Afghanistan. They're getting a lot wrong, but they're getting this one right. Welcome to the bandwagon, Charlie. I've been, oh, I'm not uh, on the bandwagon. I've, wa- I've been waving the Biden American flag on Ukraine for a while. I, I, I mean, you know, my domestic co- concerns are still there. But yeah, uh, no, you, but see, you were wrong early on. I was right early on. But things have <laughs> okay, let's come around. Let's come around to we're all right. Okay, let's just let's come around. Everybody's right. right. I, no, they've been doing amazing. Just really quick, I think it's frustrating that he's not getting more credit for it. To be honest, I, and yeah. I don't understand the polls on it. I just, I just don't understand. Maybe we need to ask Sarah on her focus group podcast to do a whole focus group on this and be like, "What don't you like about what's happening in Ukraine?" By the way, I mean, given all of our foreign policy misadventures over the past quarter century, obviously it's not over yet. Obviously, there've been horrible, you know, tragic casualties. But as far as just our role, I just don't know how what more, how much more you could ask for. I mean, maybe a little faster on the margins, et cetera. But I mean, it's been really really great and yet for some reason he's not getting the credit for it yeah and i don't i don't i don't really get i don't really get it to be to be honest i think i do it's because he he feels like he's a background figure in our politics and our culture in 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 con i mean you know a lot of us really like the idea of a president who was not in our face all the time remember that he actually said i would like to be the kind of president who you don't think about four days on (laughs) end well he got his wish because so I, you know, I, I, I think that's part of it. And so he has been reluctant to, you know, put his personal stamp on it in a way. I mean, there's been no Oval Office address to the nation. I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but I do think that he's getting it right. And at the end, we're going to look back on this as as a significant triumph. And but it won't make a difference in the midterms. I think we know that. Yeah. You know, just ask George H.W. Bush after you know the Persian Gulf War. He had a 91 percent approval rate. He got credit for that but then was defeated for re-election the next year, which continues to be amazing. Pretty much as amazing as Winston Churchill being defeated for re-election in 1945 after winning World War II. <laughs> so just a cautionary note there, you know, that sometimes- Humans are stupid. <laughs> well, is that, is that, you know, when you have a success like that, people go, that was wonderful, let's turn the page. And we're much more concerned about this. So when you think about George H.W. Bush, I'm sure you remember this as well. I'm thinking of the images of him in in 1992. It wasn't the man who presided over the you know victory in the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, or or the Gulf War. It's the guy looking sort of puzzled at the supermarket scanner. Remember, right. reading yeah. the note saying "Message, I care." <laughs> You remember all that? That's right. I do. I don't remember it because I was a child, but I've read I've read the books and I had to listen to Jeb complain about it. Um, So uh, I get I get the gist. Jeb was right about that, by the way. H.W. got screwed. Well, he did. But life is unfair. And and this is this is the problem for people who think that this global triumph is somehow going to trump inflation and the shortage of baby formula and um 401ks being destroyed that's just naive there's 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 no there's no history that's going to support you on that so i just i'm just i mentioned that tim you have a great weekend okay charlie it was so nice to be back with you and hopefully we can do it again soon i sense a little bit of bitterness about uh, not being invited <laughs> on the podcast and i i apologize for that but could i just point out yeah. that i think i'm the only person in america who has not gotten an advanced copy of your new book you never sent me one of your books. I was kind of figuring that you wanted, and for people who don't know, this will not. Uh, yeah. Boy, I was about to name check Jmart's book there. That shows you. That shows you where I am. Um, uh, why we did it? Jmart's book's called "This Will Not Pass." Pretty good. Uh, why we did it? Um, out June twenty eighth. I'll tell you more. We can maybe do a whole special podcast about it. I ha- I here's why I haven't sent you the book. When if I you read would it. like. 
you would like to read the one that still has a few couple typos in there and has the soft cover and doesn't have the acknowledgments, uh, you know, I thought you might want a nice little pretty hard copy. I might sign a little something in there for you, write you, write you a nice note. But if you don't want that, if you want the galley, uh, I'll send it to you. You tell me. Uh, the galleys are ready. I kind of want both. Okay, we'll, we'll send you I both did. then. So anyway, I, go, I, into, I, go I, into I, Amazon.com, people, if you're still listening at the end of this podcast. Pre-order it now. Why okay, on, on Friday, we always have to talk about television. Are you, are you a Better Call Saul fan? So I I quit be. Better Call Saul, and I got back in it when I had COVID, which was, you know, I know I got oh. mad at you for not having me on the podcast, but yeah. part of the reason was, let's just let's just be honest with the listeners, I did uh, bail on you when I had COVID. And, okay. uh, and so I, I had quit it because I just got a little bit bored with the brother storyline. Oh, and no. so I just stopped watching it, and and so I I started back up, um, binging it on COVID, and I'm almost I'm I'm I mean one or two episodes behind. It's excellent. I, I I'm Breaking Mad is maybe my favorite television show of all time, so it doesn't quite live up to it for me. I know for some people they actually like Better Call Saul better. I, 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 just, I, I thought I Breaking Bad was just a marvelous like beginning to end, and Better Call Saul has some weak points for me. But man, that's really it. Really picked so back good. up. If you like me, quit it. Definitely get back on. I completely agree with you. And you know the problem, and I actually do think that Better Call Saul um, is is even better than Breaking Bad, although, you know, it's a minor disagreement. So this is the problem of, you know, watching something like, say, The Wire or Ozark or Better Call Saul. It spoils you because it's so hard to find the next series that lives up to it. I mean, we are living in this amazing era where the quality is – I mean – I, I just find myself going through other shows and going, no, nah, it's not there. No, no, it's just it just doesn't have that feel to it yet. Can I tell you the other one I'm watching during COVID? Yeah, please. My other COVID binge is Under the Banner of Heaven. Oh, really? Um, it's really good. It's on Hulu. And I read the book 15 years ago or whenever it came out. And I'd be interested in what our Mormon listeners think because it's, it's obviously not a very kind portrayal of mormonism and I, I i gained a newfound respect of mormon culture in 2016 when they, they were like the last part of the republican coalition to submit to trump they held on the longest so there's something something there but um but there's an element of critique about the mormon culture but it also is just a very you know good kind of police procedural right so it's it's combining this sort of commentary on fundamentalist mormon culture you know huh. with a little bit of a whodunit um and uh it's really good it's we're about halfway through the first season oh now. Wow. and uh, andrew garfield is the main character Definitely. who i love andrew garfield so that would be my other recommendation for right now have we ever talked about line of duty have you ever seen line of duty mm -mm. okay you got to see line of duty line of duty is okay, just fantastic british police procedural okay. i would say the number one uh hit in in, in britain the queen watches line of duty it's okay. it, 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 it's it's a little it's bit grim the queen but but if if you look for line of duty i've recommended this over and over and, and it's it, it is remarkable there are a lot of really good ones out there but that was another one of those you know when i was done with it, i was like damn how am I going to I'll check it out. Did you ever do our other domestic police one, Mayor? Uh, somebody was, I got onto Under the Inner Heaven because my friend called it a Mormon mayor. <laughs> um, but mayor no. is pretty good. It's, a, it's pretty good. It is, um, it is a Pennsylvania, you know, kind of that vibe of a, of a police thing. It was maybe out last year. I think, was it Netflix? I don't remember. <laughs> mayor no, I, uh, was really good. Under the Banner of Heaven, I'm liking better, though. Okay. I, I will check that out. Tim Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We will talk again next Friday. Okay. All right. Peace out, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.